Mind Talks podcast, you are with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest is a two-time Olympic rower. He began rowing for Westlake Boys High School in 2008. He first represented New Zealand at the 2012 World Rowing Junior Championships in Bulgaria. In 2014, he was part of the under-23 men's coxed for at the World Rowing Under-23 Championships, where he placed second with his teammates. In his first Olympics in Brazil 2016, he was part of the rowing eight that placed six. And at Tokyo 2020, which has been done in 2021, he was part of the men's eight that achieved a gold medal. So first and foremost, a massive congratulations, but equally um, a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Brake. How are you? Thanks for the introduction, Nathan. Yeah, I'm good. Stoked to be here. Good, 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 good. Yeah, so I just want to, yeah, I want to start off with the Olympics. So I want to take you back to, I guess, the 10 days after you landed back. So 10 days after you returned from Tokyo. And I want you to talk to us about your feelings towards your achievements and how were you feeling emotionally? Ten days out, yeah. So, uh, to the for the listeners, just so that they're aware, we in New Zealand we're, we're still doing like a managed isolation and quarantine once we return to the country. So when we got back, we had fourteen days in isolation. So we, you know, we've come off this pinnacle event off the Olympics, off mixing with all the other athletes, socially distanced, etc. Um, the Tokyo guys they did a great job, but we came back from from all of this energy and this hype, this massive event. And we went into a room on our own for two weeks. It was it was crazy. Like it was there was there was good things to it and there was bad things to it. The bad things would be, you know, that we didn't get to go and celebrate immediately. And it was this it was, you know, chalk and cheese. There was just we we went from ultimate uh excitement to to nothing, really. Yeah. Uh but the good in that, and there was a lot of good in that. The good in that was that we just had all this time and lack of distraction to be able to f- stop and process everything that's gone on and think about, you know, what it means for us now, what it means going forward and kind of get all that out of the way. I think that with athletes, we can come off events and you can go straight into celebration mode <laughs> and not have those thoughts and process things. Yeah. So it was quite, it was quite good. It was quite handy. Yeah. It's just having that time to process is just okay. Okay, so let's take it all the way back. So what was your first living memory of a sport, either playing or watching? First memory of a sport, playing or watching? Mm. Um, I was always pushed into sport at quite a lot. I say pushed into sport. Uh, my parents, you know, made the recommendation to get into sport. So ever from, you know, since an early age of, of five I was you know I was playing mini ball at, at primary school and yeah and I was doing some swimming and I was kind of one of those kids one of those those weird annoying sporty kids who love talking about sport who <laughs> who did five or six sports all through primary school and intermediate but it was yeah I really found my niche in, in rowing and, and got a good group of people around me and and locked into that once I reached high school so that was yeah that was like seven or eight years into into sport for me was your family into rowing or was that something that you just found yourself willing to? Mm. At the time of me starting, they, they weren't into rowing. 
my father had rode for um, his high school when he was a bit younger in his club, but he hadn't been into it for, gosh, nearly 20 years, maybe more. Uh, and I only have one younger brother, so he wasn't into it yet. But considering my, my father's history and I, I wanted to give it a go. And so when I got into it, my dad got back into it, rowing as a master and coaching at the club. My brother started up. My mother started taking photographs of all of the rowing and she got into her photography. So it became a whole family affair. Okay. Talk to us about the initial feeling when you first joined um, the rowing team in high school. Just talk to us about how, how it felt. Um, how were you leaving training and what were you really excited about? Yeah, the the first like it's, when you start something new, it's confusing. There's there's so many moving parts that you don't really know how they work, how they link together. You don't know what's important. You don't know where to put your energy, and and you know that that applies to so many things. And and that was for me in rowing. Like there was you know, all of a sudden there was so many different facets of physiology. There was the fact that you're in the social environment all the time. There was all these different things going on, and and it takes a while to piece it together. So. Initially, it was this big, massive moving machine, and I didn't quite know how I fit into it, how it how it worked, how to tackle it, how to operate inside it. So initially, it was confusing, but what I did know was that there was a bunch of guys around me, and they were in the same position, and they didn't know, and they were, they were working it out as they went, and these guys were wicked guys, and they became some of my best mates that I still have today, despite not having rode with them for over a decade now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was yeah, that was a massive part of it. it was just working it out, and we kind of spent the first year really actually working out what it's about and working out what racing is about. Uh, getting down to Carapero, experiencing camps, being away from home as thirteen, fourteen year olds. Yeah, the start of sport is quite different to the end. It's quite different. Yeah, yeah, because at at that time, did you did you think? you could eventually become Olympian or would that never cross your mind at that point? Oh, man. Um, no, it didn't really cross my mind. At that point, I was I was just following my following my nose. I was just, just whatever was in front of me, I was pursuing it. And I think one thing that I did well, which, which helped with my success was when I did have something in front of me, I really tackled it whole, wholeheartedly and I was focused on that. Um, but I didn't. I wasn't focusing with the intention of in 10, 15 years' time being in an, an Olympic team, going to the Olympics. I wasn't even thinking about that. Mm. Back when I was at school, we had the greats of Hamish Bond, Eric Murray. For you guys, it would be Andy Triggs-Hodge and Pete Reid. Those guys were, were working their magic, and it was cool to watch, but it was just so far ahead of where I was that it was too difficult to relate or even see myself in that position. Mm. What were the dynamic? What were the dynamics like for 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 your teammates? So for yourself, you didn't really foresee anything. But were there anyone, any of your teammates in particular, that already had those um, early aspirations? And if they did, what impact did it have on you? Yeah, good question. Oh, um, I if they did, there's <laughs> probably probably a few guys back then. Yeah. Uh, gosh, this is so long ago. I don't. My memory's not the greatest on the details. <laughs> Um, there is one guy that was in the team who in the in the school team with me who made it through to the elite level and he's still training alongside me now, which has been awesome. But uh, yeah, between him and I, I don't even think that while we were at school we thought about it that much. Uh, there were there were some guys that took it seriously, but 
if I'm honest, the back at school we didn't we didn't talk about the Olympics that much. Not mm-hmm. at, le- at least not in the not not with the idea that we were going to make it there someday. And in, in terms of um, the challenges of training, um, how how was it like for you coming up? Coming up, uh, I was in a very structured program, which was lucky. I was in quite a big program. And, you know, a big program can have its pros and its cons. One is that, uh, you know, the, the, the pro is that everything is, is, is laid out for you. So it's just, it's just walk the path. But the con is that you, you don't get that experience and really owning your development. Uh, because, because your development path is laid out for you. you you're, just, you're just following it. So, yeah, it's like a, a, a double-edged sword, right? Like it's, it's positive on one side and on the other side, it's also in a way it, it, it didn't give you as much room to develop ownership over uh, or accountability for development. Okay. Uh, yeah. What did you dislike most about your training sessions? <laughs> Um, <laughs> how much they hurt. <laughs> I, I think that's pretty universal across sports, isn't it? <laughs> you get the odd person who just loves to hurt themselves. And, and I don't know if even now, I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. You're a bit weird. Um, but um, no, it's it, the, when I was younger, it was, it was probably how much some things hurt. And, mm. and a part of that is probably, probably because when I was younger, I didn't realize that if you progressed, you know, you made steady, consistent progressions rather than trying to jump in the deep end and smash it. Yeah. You can build a capacity to tolerate things. And now we used to go out for runs around the lake and uh, (laughs) I'd just go out and try and be the fastest runner. And I was not the best (laughs) runner. So that was so (laughs) freaking hard, man. Like that, that hurt a lot. And I used to hate them, but, there was the competitive part of me that didn't want to lose and wanted to be the best. So, yeah. In terms of your mindset, would you say your mindset's changed a lot from when you started to now, or has there been a lot of similarities along the way? I'd say there's been a lot of similarities. Like, yeah, when you're developing, not just as an athlete, but as a person, you are always trying to, to, make tweaks and improve your strengths. Well, sorry, improve your weaknesses and your strengths, but really yeah, solidify your strengths. And I think a lot of my strengths were with me from a young age, but that's not to say that I hadn't made many changes and some of them were, you know, relatively simple, simple skills, but for me, they didn't come naturally. So I'd have to put a lot of effort into them. Um, to answer your question, a lot of what I did back then, I still do. And it was more a case of cutting out the stuff that wasn't working and building up something that did work. And then, like I said, doubling down on my strengths. Okay. Um, so you, you said, you mentioned earlier about Rowan being, you know, extremely sociable and yeah, that's something that, you know, is for everyone to see. So I guess my next question is what were the most memorable team building activities that you were part of? Oh, um, Yes, rowing is super social. We, you know, for for example, in Cambridge where we live here, it's quite a small town. It's it's about thirty thousand people, and you've got the New Zealand rowing team, the New Zealand cycling team, the New Zealand track cycling team. You've got the kayakers, 
you've got equestrian, you've got triathlon, we've got so many elite sports in Cambridge. And yeah. so you, you tend to, to live with athletes and because rowing is such a big sport compared to the others, the rowers tend to yeah. live with rowers and then you also train with them. And it's not that uncommon for people to live with their crewmates. Okay. So you've got, you know, you're, you're literally spending more time with some of your crewmates than you would if you were married to someone. You, you're living with them <laughs> yeah. and you're training with them. Oftentimes you're commuting with them as well. So like you don't get any break from these people and that's okay. So long as you've got the structures in place to deal with it. Um, that would be a part of you know, that. That in itself was a, is a mem- memorable thing for how we how we bonded. Uh, yeah. But as far as activities goes, uh, training camps are massive because if you aren't used to being around someone that much, you kind of learn how they work and you learn how to live with them. And you just you see them at their worst. When you see someone at their worst, you really get an idea of how they function. Mm. And I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, I think it's a good thing. It's, I think yeah. it's a good thing. One other exercise, I guess, is, or not exercise, but one, one thing that really we found brought us together was when everyone was aligned with going in absolute balls on the line for a session and you go in and you, you're smashing yourself, you're absolutely giving it your all and you can see that your mates, your teammates are doing that with you. Like the amount of, it's it's really trust. You're building trust, and that that is the fiber that knits the team together. When you trust that your teammates are putting out just as much as you all the time. Okay. Sacrifices. So any elite athlete has to make some sacrifices. Are there some sacrifices that you've made that you regret, or all the sacrifices that you made were they all worth it in the end? Mm, regret's an interesting one. Regret is an interesting one. There are some things that I do regret, but I don't think I would change them. Uh, it's it, I, I consider there's a bit of a fine line there between regret and wanting to change something. Uh, it, I, I, the reason I don't want to change it is because everything worked out pretty well, and I'm pretty happy with where things are at now. <laughs> um, and you never know if, if something along the way that you might regret uh, was actually quite influential on arriving at your final destination. So hmm. as far as changing things, I wouldn't change anything. But as far as regret goes, yeah, sure, there's things. Like there's, there was so many sacrifices. Like you you need to make sacrifices in, in any profession in order to be in the top 1%. Uh, like you, and, you know, there's, there's so many things for myself. Like an example is the amount of times that I, during my high school and uh, university years, I missed out on parties and just went home to sleep. And, you know, <laughs> oftentimes, as this, is, this is a very common thing in sport, isn't it? Um, oftentimes that wasn't just because I was like, I need to do this for sport. It was because I actually wanted to because I was so tired. Um, yeah. But in hindsight, like that's, that was also a big part of growing up that I, that I, got, that I kind of missed out on for the most part. Um, so, yeah, would I change it? No. Um, regret? I regret not going out to maybe one or two more parties, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it, all, it, all, it all worked out and I've got good mates still, so no worries there. <laughs> How would you assess your parents' role in your career, especially in the early stages? Tough question, tough question. Um, they, well, it's not a tough question, actually. They... 
supported everything that I wanted to do. They drove me places, they financially supported it, and they encouraged me, which is above and beyond well, it's you know, that that's that's the perfect parents role really. Uh, yeah. That was in the early stages and and I needed that. I definitely needed that. You know, anyone who wants to focus solely on something needs that because anything outside of your training and sport is a distraction. So if you've got to focus on getting yourself there, if you've got to focus on being motivated to do it, you know, all of those things, you've got to focus on working out how you're going to pay for things. It's a, it, it is a distraction. It's, you know, it could be a desirable difficulty in the long run because it, it teaches resilience, but it is a distraction. Yeah. And I didn't have that. Um, fortunately, my parents, my parents took care of all of that, which I was very lucky for. In the later years, uh, my parents took a role of, this is an assumption. This is what I've observed, I guess, but mm-hmm. they took a role of just letting me do my thing. Once I got the hang of it, supporting me, you know, if I needed financial support with my living situation, they gave it. If they, if I needed you know, a fuel card, they, they supported me with that so that I could get around mm-hmm. places. Uh, but they took on more of like a, just a, a background role where they were there. So my dad was coaching with the club. So he always came down to regattas and visited, my mum was taking photos still, so she was always around and, and catching up for coffees. So they were there, but they weren't as actively involved in the later okay. years up till now. Yeah. Okay, so we're, the next, my next question is linked to disappointment in sport. So when you've had moments when you've been disappointed, how have you overcome them? That's a skill. That's very much a skill. Uh, and it's a skill that I've been working on. I worked on it right up until Tokyo, really, um, because yeah, as you said, Nathan, in the intro in Rio, we we got sixth, and the year before when we qualified, we got fourth, and we were 21 years old. We had an average career age of 21 years old, which is which is very young for rowing. I think the average age of the gold medalist in rowing is 30, oh, wow. and yeah, yeah, and so a bunch of 21 year olds, we got in fourth at our first world champs, and we're like <laughs> mean. <laughs> we're we're shit hot. We're, we're God's gift to rowing, and we're like we're going to get a medal in Rio, and we got sixth, and we were not prepared for that setback. We weren't prepared for it. We hadn't put work into building a resilient mindset. We were still following our nose at that point, um, and that set us up for. Well, I'll speak for myself now, but that set me up for quite a a rough three months. We had three months off after the Rio Olympics and like I came off that and you know, you, you go from having all this positive feedback and, and coaching and training and, and racing. You, you know, even when you're competing, you're getting positive feedback to, to nothing. And I didn't have a purpose after, after Rio and mentally that was quite difficult. And, you know, when I take a step back and, and look at all the other problems that people have in sport, it's nothing. I still went to the Olympics. I still made an A final. I still got yeah. sixth place. It's not that bad. Yet for me, that was big. And so, you know, I didn't deal with it very well, but it was a really good learning opportunity for the future to look back and reflect and go, okay, so I'm going to come off a pinnacle event. I'm going to come off being the most stimulated I will ever probably be. Yep. to nothing, not only do I need to be wary of the fact that that's going to happen, but you know, I can take it a step further and put some things in place so that that step between the two is not quite as 
quite not quite as big and you know just a list of things that that had helped in that area was was one recognizing that's going to happen and anticipating it uh two it was recognizing that the sport and everything that i'm doing was a want rather than a need so regardless of the result it was only ever something that i wanted and it was you know, it wouldn't change me it wasn't going to 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 justify anything it was it was just something that i really wanted and i put a lot of time towards it so i wanted it quite badly but it wasn't something that i needed uh and so you know coming off a or going into an event that helps quite a lot but also coming out win or lose it also helps because you kind of you've already made that first step towards recognizing that you're the same person uh, and for those that achieve you know success it could be maybe less important or maybe they could you know, it could inflate the ego and it's and it's yeah. the ground it's grounding to have have that thought but you know for those that don't do well in their event uh it's so useful because it's the first step towards you know recognizing that it's not the end of the world it's yeah. just it was just a sporting competition uh and that you're still the same person and you can go on and do other things when you return back from rio what um i want to speak um, specifically about the, I guess, the rowing community in New Zealand. Um, how did they, what was the coverage like for you? W were they supportive? Were there those who were a bit disappointed? Um, just talk to us about how, what was the interaction like with the rowing community in New Zealand? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's, it's been odd. It's been odd. As soon as we got out of our managed isolation that I mentioned earlier, yeah. We had 36 hours of freedom, and then the country went into lockdown. Mm. And we've been there; we've pretty much been there ever since. So, as far as going out to the clubs and giving back, and excuse me for the for being cheesy, but inspiring the next generation, which is very much mm. an Olympian's role, we didn't, we haven't had any of that because we haven't been able to go to schools. We haven't been able to go to clubs like we've we've done things online and virtually and we've had zoom calls and there's been so many phone calls of support from the rowing community but we've really missed out on that physical interaction and it will come and it will come but it's been unusual because all of the support that we've had and there has been plenty there has been a lot it's it's one thing about kiwis is that we love our sport and and so there's been plenty of of messages and phone calls but it really has just been that to this point which is which is kind of unusual because you know you you typically have olympic teams doing parades and and all these these visits and all these talking engagements and there's just been there hasn't been any of that it's it's been weird but it will come i think it will come so what about 2016 so how so obviously you came back, you, you was disappointed. What type of support did you get from the rowing community when you returned from Rio? Yeah. Uh, anyone who hasn't achieved what they wanted to will relate to this. All of the support came in. Oh, you did so well. Oh, it might not have been what you wanted, but it was still pretty good, still pretty cool that you got to go. And for the most part, that's they're 100% correct. It is cool, but when you're coming off hoping for more and expecting for more, and probably for Rio, in my mind, I was needing more. Yeah. Uh, hadn't made that connection between wants versus needs yet. Uh, hearing those words, it's, it's it's pretty bittersweet. It's just like, oh, you know, 
you're just saying that because you want because you need to like thanks appreciate it yeah cool i failed that was my mindset and that was kind of the extent of it there was there was there was a few like uh functions and stuff but um it was really just you come off that we'd come off rio we'd you know, everyone said, oh, you know, I'm truly disappointed, but you did great. And then it was just left to yourself. Hmm. Were there some people that didn't show any sign of support that you would expect them to show support? Mm. No, no particular bodies stand out to me. There's you know, the, the occasional individual that doesn't really know how to process or well, not process, but didn't didn't really know how to talk to me around. No, well, and knowing that I wasn't happy with my result, they were kind of, they you know, they may have been uncomfortable and and trying to have that conversation or have a conversation, uh, knowing that I'd feel like felt like I'd failed, but not many. There wasn't many people like that, and you know, even to to those people, if if there are some people out there listening that you know might find themselves in a situation where there's a friend who hasn't achieved what they wanted to. I would go as far as saying that just catching up and just, you know, asking questions rather than trying to say you did so well or anything like that. You know, just, just go and just being personable was, was the nicest thing after, after not achieving my goals was just literally hanging out with my mates and being reminded that life goes on. And it's, you know, this is, and, and, and that everything's, you know, all goods afterwards. It's not to say that I was in, you know, a massive hole after Rio. I, I don't think I was, and if I was, I I, I didn't recognise it. But <laughs> but it was just nice to to catch up with those mates and just go out for a beer or have a coffee and and do those normal things and and get the momentum of life rolling again. Okay. So with regards to your your first ever competitive race, um, how did you mentally prepare for that? Um, I'm a massive hype man. I hype my, I hype my crew up and I hype myself up. So my preparation is just, it's just back slapping everyone. It's taking some caffeine and, and firing up and, and I give energy to my teammates to get them excited. And then when they fire the energy back to me, then I'm, then I, I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof and whether, yeah. and whether that actually ends up coming true on the day like it's anyone's guess but that's how I go into things I just go in absolute fire and just give it absolute hell and was was that preparation the same for the Olympic final t- Tokyo was it or was it a little bit different no it was the exact same man it was the exact same <laughs> this is one of my strengths from school that we were talking about earlier is just I just love the hype I just love the hype um, for Tokyo there's a photo from Tokyo uh, and it's of the eight coming out of the blocks and everyone's kind of breathing. You can see it, they're relaxed. And I'm just sitting in the middle of the boat, my mouth's wide open, I'm screaming something, <laughs> just firing the crew up. Um, so, you know, 10 years in the sport, that's that's still my thing. Even, you know, even through everything I've learned, like I still found that bringing the energy uh, can be quite beneficial. The boys would wind me up over it. They go, oh, you're wasting your own energy doing that, you're, you know, you, you maybe you're spending 10% of your output for one stroke if you're shouting. And I'm like, yeah, but if I spend 10% in, 10% of my energy and I get 5% more out of every other person, that's a massive win. 
Yeah. <laughs> it only takes yeah. two people to get on board to, to make up for what I've lost. And then we've got five other guys that might be getting a kick out of it. So it's definitely worth it. Absolutely. Maybe that's just me justifying shouting in the middle of a race. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, but it, may, it makes sense because everyone's dynamic is going to be different. And I guess that's what that's part of what you bring to it and someone else will bring something else. So I guess that's how it all works, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What are some of your what are some of the biomechanical aspects of rowing that you've added to your game? Biomechanical aspects that I've added to my game. Mm. We biomechanics is a massive part of rowing. Like there's there's yeah. so many levers. There's you know, layer on top of that physiology. Um, I would say biomechanics is part of what we're working on on a daily basis. Okay. Um, so rather than you know just one or two things that I've added to my game, it's something that I'm always yeah. refining. Yeah. Like we've we've got our coach alongside us. Tony O'Connor was my coach for the eight. Gary Roberts for the for the pair before that. Noel Donaldson before that, the legendary Australian coach who coached the uh, awesome foursome to the Aussie four to two gold medals back to back. Um, all of these guys, they're they're coaching basically in line with the ultimate well not the ultimate but like the the best fit biomechanical stroke that i can have um, yeah. we're always trying to achieve the best biomechanical position uh movement you know we're always trying to we're always working on that and in terms of coaches how how easy has it been for you to adapt to different type of coaches that you've had in your career so far mm, that's yeah, that's that's something that I haven't had an issue really working with coaches, I don't think. And I think I've been quite lucky there. But that coach-to-athlete relationship can be pretty variable between coaches. And even with the, the three coaches that I've worked with at elite level, they have all coached quite differently and also been quite different personalities. So, you know, there's – there's your coaching coach to athlete relationship, which changes between coaches. Some coaches are much more, here's your work, go and do it. And then you don't get much feedback. And for some that works. Uh, we've, you know, there's, there's legendary rowing coach, Dick Thompson, who coached Hamish and Eric to their first gold medal in the pair. And, and he coached Mahe Drysdale to his, to his gold medals. And, and that's very much his method. Um, it's, it's a, these are the miles, go out and do it. And there's not much social interaction out of it. Uh, Outside of that, there's, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's it can be it can be difficult, and you you do need to work out that landscape and work out not just how to respond well to that coach, but how to work with them well because you know the coach is another person, and the coach needs to be enjoying what they're doing in order to be turning up and giving their most, and yeah. it really is the athlete's responsibility or, you know, anyone's responsibility to ensure that the people that you're working with want to be there. Like you can't turn up and, and be a dick. Like it's yeah. as simple as that because the coach isn't going to enjoy that. And then you're not going to get the most out of your coach. So when the coaching does change, it does take a little bit of recalibration to work out how to work with that person. But I would go as far as saying that that applies to working with anyone you. Okay. What is the best piece of advice um, a coach has given you? best piece of advice um man they okay one thing let's go one thing otherwise i'll ramble again here uh <laughs> probably the best piece of advice that i got was 
to spend time watching the athletes around me and deciding and recognizing what I liked about what the other athletes did that I could take on board for myself. So basically that was, that was a simple way of saying, Hmm. be a student of your sport and study everything around you and take the things or, or take the things that you like and try them. And if they work, keep them. And if they don't, well, then you've tried them. Wow. Yeah. That's that's probably the biggest thing. It's funny you say that because I've I've heard something similar and I always tend to hear it from elite athletes um, <laughs> in terms of that advice. Um, and, it, and it shows that no matter what level you're at, you're always learning. You can always, always learn. learn. You can always learn. And I think that's one key defining thing that sets the successful athletes apart from others and probably you know i'm only starting to get a feel for world outside of sport but i would say that anyone that's successful period what sets them apart is that they're always willing to learn and always able to learn and always looking to learn as well like there are people that could be below you in, in some sense in sport or, or anywhere else, but there may and but there is very likely things that they do better than you and it only takes an open mind to be able to look at that and pick up things that you could do. Absolutely. What were um what are some of your the mental methods that you use to, to get through races? Because for myself, when I watch rowing, um it's it's just it's just elite. <laughs> Because it's so much work and I always feel like if I was in a position where I'm rowing with um, my teammates and it's burning, my arms are absolutely burning and it's almost that pressure, that mental pressure, I have to keep going because I don't want to let my teammates down. But then that whole process is just more energy that you're exerting. So for me, it'd really, really be good to hear. How do you keep yourself neutral when the, when the going gets tough? Um, it's easy. You just grab the stick and pull. It's look, it's, it's all, it's all done in training really. Uh, when I'm racing, I'm not thinking much to be fair. Like, um, yeah, I'm thinking a bit, but it's everything in racing, everything that you see in racing is a product of everything you've done in training. And it's training where you put in all the thoughts, you, you make mistakes, you trial what it takes to get in the right headspace to stay in with your mates and, and, and perform basically like, mm. you know, you, you need to test your racing and you need to know how to race before you turn up to racing, like racing, the best races aren't the ones that turn up and pull it out of the bag on the day. They're the ones that have done the same thing in training really. And now it's just a case of going out and doing what they've already done. And to take it a step further, this was a mentality that, and an, and an approach that Hamish Bond really brought into to our eight. And you know, it wasn't anything new, but he really drilled home the importance of this. And that's yeah. that all of the things that you do in training, well, all of the, the tests and the really hard stuff that you do in training needs to be harder than your racing so that by the time you get to your racing, you 
I say this relatively, but you are relatively comfortable for most of it. Wow. So you aren't physically stretched out at the halfway mark to the point where you fall apart. Hmm. And, and that was very much, you know, that was all of our training. It was getting physiologically good enough to be able to get to that halfway mark comfortable. It was getting technically proficient enough that we were holding a sustainable rhythm that was getting the most out of, out of our physiology. It was building language and training that we could use in racing so that when a word came up, we all knew the exact feeling and response that we needed to execute. There was no room for misinterpretation. That was what we did in our training that meant that when it came to race day, it was really just rinse and repeat. So next question is related to, well, 2020 in terms of COVID. So in the UK, a lot of the elite athletes couldn't train, sport was stopped. They had to find different ways to, to keep on going. And a lot of them, it also affected the mental health how was it like in new zealand and how was it like for you during that period yeah i think we had it pretty pretty good here we were pretty lucky we well the rest of the world was in lockdowns we were basically we were, we were living normal life because we we had no covid here for so long mm. that's changed in the last month but it's been pretty sweet for the most part one thing that we did recognize was that there was a chance that the olympics may not go ahead and if we were not prepared for that, we were setting ourselves up for quite a turbulent season as far as motivation to train goes. And so we, we sat down at the start of the season and we, we said, hey, look, like, you know, if the Olympics don't go ahead, how are we going to feel? And we're like, well, if the, if the Olympics don't go ahead, we've still spent, we will we'll still have spent the last year a, staying fit, B, embracing a challenge with good mates, being social, we will have been paid to do so, and, you know, we'll be fit and healthy. So is it a wasted year? Absolutely not. Mm. And really just sim simply recognizing that was enough for us to go, well, cool, let's just get stuck into training, and if it doesn't go ahead, that's going to suck, but it's no big issue because we're not wasting our time. And that recognition and that, you know, that, that subtle focus shift set us up to be able to train through and have a resilient approach to our training because any news around COVID wasn't going to phase us too much because we knew what we were doing was, was still a really good use of our time. Okay. Um, another interest of mine is, is food and nutrition. So do you personally, or um, does the New Zealand team have a nutritionist and what type of foods are encouraged to be eaten on a regular basis? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a couple of nutritionists and they, the nutrition is, it's a lot of our, our, I guess, providers, you know, our physiologists, our, our nutritionists, our psychologists, mm -hmm. a lot of it, They'll check in, but for the most part, you get as much out of them as you want. So okay. it's a case of you own that area, you own your nutrition, and you go to the nutritionist and say, this is what I want. How do we do it? And then they come to you with a plan. And so for some people, it's, it's you know, I, I, the lightweights come to mind because they literally have to manage their, 
the mass, you know, the amount of food they eat by, by weight because they can't be overweight. They'd have a pretty strict food plan. Whereas someone like myself, I'm a heavyweight. It doesn't matter if I'm a kilo heavier on, waist, on race day. Uh, ideally, I'm not, but it doesn't matter really. Um, it's more just about getting, making sure I'm getting the right, en- enough in. I'm getting enough food in, but also the right quality of food. The quality of food's been a big thing for me. It's, it's making sure that it's, you know, you're getting enough nutrients and you're getting your recovery food in at the right time. Yeah. It's, it's not just, you know, oh, I had pasta and it worked well for my run the next day. I'm going to have pasta every single day. You know, it's, it's making sure you're getting variants. Uh, I guess the main thing around nutrition for me has just been making sure I'm educated and my decisions, making sure that my decisions are educated decisions rather than guesswork. In terms of um, sport psychology, I know in a lot of sports they're taking it more seriously than before. How is it like in rowing? Um, It kind of comes down to two parts, right? We've got performance psychology or yeah yeah performance i guess um and your performance mindset and then there's kind of that's you know the positive side of things and then there's the the skills and and dealing with with negative thoughts and and kind of combating that and i guess you'd probably put more of a mental health label on on that side of the psychological support um and and it really is is two parts you know those two parts and there isn't really a heck of a lot of overlap in my eyes between them. One's kind of the ambulance at the bottom of the hill, maybe even <laughs> fence, the fence a little bit. It's, it's, you know, that's the skills that get you out of shit. And the other one is, is, is how do you really get the most out of yourself? Very different things. Yeah, I'm really interested in performance psychology. Um, actually recently passed away, um, Trevor Mowat, so RIP. Um, he kind of got me into performance psychology um in america and it's something that i find absolutely fascinating so with with yourself how has um i guess performance psychology helped you um i guess better yourself to reach an optimal level it's really just helped me make sure that i'm closer to 100 percent on the ball every day like I, you know it, it minimizes waste days of wasted training uh you know say i say the average athlete turns up and for 75 percent of their sessions they're focused and they're on the game and 25 percent of their sessions maybe they're tired maybe there's an external distraction maybe I don't know, maybe they just don't want to be there for some reason. I, that's all. Those are three pretty normal things that every athlete's going to deal with. Uh, it's how do you switch that around on those days and get in the zone and, and, and train to your best because it's really those, you know, if you can shift from 75% uh, effective training to 85 or 90% effective training, like that's massive. I don't think a lot of people realize how big that is. Mm. And that's probably where I've, that, that's where I've made my gains in performance psychology is, is bumping up the amount of days that I'm turning up and I'm on my game. Okay. So this, this is my last question to you and it's to do with how diverse rowing is. So in the UK, rowing isn't diverse and it tends to be 
with, from people that have gone to, to private schools. They're the ones that get into rowing. What do you think could be done differently to make it more diverse so people from different backgrounds can get into rowing? It's a, yeah, that's a really good question. And it, it's actually something we, I was talking about yesterday with, with a mate of mine. Uh, we were comparing rugby in New Zealand, a mate of mine. I've done this too many times. My partner, I think it was. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about how she, she does rugby for New Zealand. It's, it's so much easier financially to get into rugby than it is to get into rowing. And you know, it, it, unfortunately, it does just create a barrier between those that can afford it and those that can't. And it's, you know, I wish it wasn't that way because we could have so many more people in the sport, but there's just, there's just all the kit that you need, like a boat, a good boat costs 50 grand. Like, oh. yeah, they're, they're expensive, man. When it, whereas rugby, all you, all you need is a 100, $200 pair of boots and you're good for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one thing that I think that we could do to improve the involvement is to have more indoor rowing. And, and it's, that area is growing because all you really need there is you need a club that has rowing machines and rowing machines compared to boats are so much cheaper. Hmm. And if you had people okay. getting into indoor rowing, then when they really see they've got a passion for it, then it hopefully it opens up more doors for them to find a way or get scholarships to get into some sort of rowing program. And not necessarily yeah. just university, but even just maybe a club. Because yeah. I, I think here in New Zealand, like even for entry-level club fees, this is like, I think this is not including regatta costs. Uh, it's about $1,000 for a year, which for some people, for many people, that's just too much to pay Yeah. for a recreational sport. Yeah, absolutely. But um, it is, that is a really good question. And it's... It's something that could definitely improve because, like, as someone from someone who's passionate about the sport, the more people we've got in it, the better. And the lower that entry cost is, the more likely we are to have a more diverse group of people in the sport. And that's only a great thing. Okay. So I've got two more questions. Um, first, uh, first question of the two What is the greatest misconception about rowing? <laughs> greatest misconception is that it's all arms it's not it's all legs <laughs> it's all legs <laughs> the amount of people I, 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 know, I know it's your face when, when neighbors said arms earlier on it was like mm, no <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the amount of people that come up and go oh you do rowing you must have big arms <laughs> it's like uh, rowing's about 10 percent arms rowing's about 10 percent arms yeah it's about 70 percent legs 20 percent body and uh, 10% arms. So rowers do tend to be relatively built up top, but it's only because we're putting in four plus hours a, a day where the arms are still getting used. But just compared to legs, like arms are just so weak compared to how strong legs can get. So yeah, it's, it's actually all legs and all legs and, and lower back rather than arms. <laughs> so at least I've learned something now. <laughs> yeah. um, last question. Um, Obviously, you're still really in the midst of your career, um, but you started at age 13. So how do you maintain the feeling of rowing like when you first started? Yeah, that is another really good question. Um, 
I think it changes. I, I, I do think it changes. When I rode as a 13-year-old, it was exciting to see these leaps and bounds and improvement and to do it with really good mates from school that you know we were all young and we were developing together and it was exciting to be on this journey together. Uh, whereas once I left that environment, it became a bit more personal yeah. why I was in the sport. And I would go as far as saying that it kind of came back to team towards the end, uh, heading into Tokyo, was that I was also I was I was back in it again for the team, but only once I'd got to know those people that I was training with at the elite level. Uh, but to answer your question, it's it's really it's a fluid thing. Like what motivates you and what keeps you doing something changes as as time goes on, and it changes with environment as well. And and that's completely normal. It's it's a case of just working out what it is that is keeping you motivated. And I think that's something that needs to happen pretty regularly is assessing what's motivating an individual. Uh, and it's something I do pretty regularly is I'll, I'll sit yeah. down probably once every three months and go, you know, why do I keep turning up? Why am I, why am I here every day? I'd be crazy to do it without a reason. So why am I doing this? Um, and, it, and it helps you stay clear and stay focused. And it, that's part of the performance psychology that we do is, is, being aware of what our motivation is. Okay. Thank you. That was really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think you are your first rower, rowing guest. And um, yeah, we really, really, really appreciate it. An Olympic gold medalist, which is just, it's just wonderful. Um, yeah, your story, you're still in the midst of your career. So yeah, we're really, really, really thankful that you've just taken some time out. Um, it's important to say that actually it's really, really early where Michael is. So we really have to appreciate him publicly for just really just taking some time out because honestly, 8 a.m. 8 a.m. Oh, has to be appreciated. That's not that bad. <laughs> How can um, people get in contact with you, Michael? Uh, best way to get in touch with me if you just want to want to chat is probably on uh, Instagram. Okay. And then and what uh, is your uh, handle? Uh it's just my name, so Michael okay. Brake, M I C H A E L B R A K E. And uh okay. then there's also my LinkedIn as well, which is which is the same. So but yeah, head over to my Instagram if you want to get in touch. Okay. Yeah, that was really, really good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um we learned a lot. I think my personal favorite part was probably just even though it was a small part of it, it was just talking about the performance psychology um for myself if i knew anything about performance psychology if i knew anything just even about you know just assisting the mindset that i um, i had when i was younger then i definitely would have been more successful um in the sports that i participated in ed what was your favorite part of this interview learning Always learning, um, and I think that's key to to everyone of all standard. It doesn't matter if you're someone who's not going to be an elite athlete. You always have to keep on trying to learn to be the best that you can be, and um, yeah, that stood out to me. Yeah, thank you. Okay, guys, until next time, stay safe, um, stay healthy, and until the next episode, bye. <laughs>